Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Enough Wicker. Uh, it actually is very special um, because I'm here, I'm Lauren, and Sarah's here as well. And we're joined by Jim Colucci, who you have heard us reference many, many times as the author of Golden Girls Forever, uh, which we affectionately refer to as our Bible here. Um, so thank you so much for being here, Jim. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to sit down with you. Finally, at last, I know so much about you as well and your podcast because people are always telling me about it. I've heard it, of course, but people are always referencing it to me. I love it. That That's great. So are they nice. talking yeah. about how it's our religion? Yes, they <laughs> yeah. do. They, they, I think that they, uh, they, they know that you're dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> they, meet, they meet the prophet at last. So yeah, yes. we're so yeah. excited to have you here, um, particularly because of our enough wicker intellectualizing the Golden Girls bent. There is not a single compendium that is better than your book golden girls forever so i'm, I'm sure well, our loyal you. listeners know about it um but uh but yeah i just wanted to say that that it's like you know this is like sitting with royalty it's very exciting oh thank you <laughs> yeah we uh we both reference it before every episode and then like before we record we're like did you look at jim's book and then we talk about sort of what we we found so uh this is not meant to disservice flattery but thank you for writing the book for all of us um <laughs> And I think it actually might be fun sort of to back up a bit and uh, talk a little bit about your your background in general and also uh, your personal connection to the Golden Girls. Obviously, you decided to write this book. Um, and so I assume you like the show. Uh, and so could you yeah. give us a little bit of, of um, yeah, like personal background and, and your connection to the show? You know, I, I, I would, would say that my connection to the show is the same as everybody, as you two and all of your listeners. So I can't say that my connection was special. It was personal, just like I'm sure all of yours is, mm -hmm. in that I was a kid who grew up watching probably what one would say too much TV, but I was unathletic and I was gay and not always having a great time in school. I mean, I, I really actually loved school and was very academically focused, but you know, the social parts of school in, in middle school can be awkward for everybody. There's no reason to even have to say that. Um, but I just think that I took my refuge in TV. And here I was 14, no, when I was 15 in the spring of 1985. So I've just given away my age, which I usually try not to do, but oh, math gets me every time. Uh, I was it can 15 be like Blanche, you know, you can have a couple different answers. Yes, exactly. And I can, my middle name's going to be Elizabeth in the middle of this episode. I'm <laughs> change it to Marie at some point, so don't worry about that. Um, so yes, so I was 15 in the spring of 1985 and way, way too TV focused. And my parents actually were too cheap to subscribe to the actual TV Bible TV guide. So I had to rely on the TV uh, local listings that came out in your Sunday paper. But the good thing is they always had like a Q&A column. And from the beginning, people were writing in with questions. What's this I hear about a new pilot that stars gold, you know, that stars royalty from TV, Betty White from the Mary Tyler Moore show and Rue McClanahan from Mama's Family and from Maude and, and B. Arthur, Maude herself. And so I just remember all through that spring hearing about this pilot that was a super group of comedy, of, of people I loved in comedy. And it's interesting because you hear so much talk about, I, I'm going to say presumably straight white men, let's blame it on them who say women aren't <laughs> funny or who have said that. And I'm certainly not all straight white men say that, but there's the, the of the people saying that or who, have, who try to keep that trope alive, 
that's probably who it is. Jealous straight white men. And especially and, back then. I mean, back then, that especially, was, a, that was a very, very, like, <laughs> that's a log line in a lot of comedy. <laughs> right. But that, that's what never made sense to me, because as somebody who loved TV, every time there was a sitcom that I loved, it was fronted by a woman. It was I Love Lucy. It was the Mary Tyler Moore show. It was that girl. It was, I mean, it, yes, I love Get Smart, but I love 99 probably more than Max. It just, <laughs> I never understood, especially in television, and especially in television where the sexist powers that be, and maybe there's some truth to it too, have always said women control the remote and women are the ones who make the household decisions about what soap to buy. And so we should be programming to women. And so everything had always been to me so obviously about women. And so when a show comes around, that's a super group of women talking about being women in an, er in, in an area that nobody else is exploring. To me, even as at 15, as a boy, I was like, this is brilliant. When is this happening? And I, all through that summer, would look through those TV guides and look for any kind of news about when's this show happening? And of course, finding out that it was going. So from the moment, I believe it was September 16th, the moment that show debuted, I was there. I was there on a Saturday night. It helped that I was 14 and not going out on a date or anything. 15. <laughs> it actually debuted as I turned 16. But uh, I was with the show from the beginning. So, I, I, But I would say that that's the, every, a lot of people's story. I can't say that I'm unique. I'm sure a lot of people, if you were my age, you were onto it from the beginning. Or certainly when you came of age, you found it in reruns and loved it from, um, from your teen years or whatever. So it, it just happened that in as my career developed, and I actually went to college for something completely unrelated to this, I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and I studied computer science and marketing, nothing to do with entertainment at all. I mean, I think in my day, there weren't that many great entertainment journalism type majors, you could be a journalism major, like my husband was at Northwestern, there were some communication schools, or film schools, but they didn't have a TV major. So I, I probably couldn't have done what I wanted to do. Anyway, but as I transitioned my career and, and gave up some of the stuff I had been doing because I didn't like it and wanted to get into writing, I was lucky enough to get some assignments from TV Guide magazine, and that helped get other assignments. And I, at that point, said, okay, and this is all now at the dawn of the internet, but my whole life before that had been pre-internet. Mm -hmm. I had always said when I loved a show, as a kid particularly, as I said, I would have to rely on those Sunday papers, there were so few good sources for real in-depth knowledge about a show because those Q and A's would be, you know, 50 words at a time of, of answer about a show. Even if you read a feature story in people magazine or something like that, it would be part fluff and it would, it would only be a certain length and you would get just a little glimpse of what the show is like or what, what it's like behind the scenes, but not enough. If you buy a book about a show, which I would do a lot as a kid, um, sometimes the books wouldn't be that in-depth in or even worse, they would have errors that you would find. I remember one time, this was as an adult, but I was buying a friend a, uh, for, a, for a wedding shower, a friend who was in my sitcom writing group, uh, a book called TV Weddings, thinking this would be a funny like wedding shower gift. And right as I, I bought it at the bookstore, as I was home wrapping it, I th started thumbing through it. And in the preface, the first thing says, on Get Smart, when Don Adams married Barbara Feldman, and I said, you know what, book's going back. It's going back to the bookstore. Can't give somebody something that's in sentence one, calls her Barbara. Red, Feldman. red um, line. Red line, book going back, new present. So, you know, I'm critical. Um, and so I never found, found the sources, the kind of sources I would want as a viewer. 
because I always watching things like that were formative for me, like the Brady Bunch and then later the Golden Girls. If you really love a world like that, you want to be able to feel like you can crawl inside that TV set and look around that Brady boy's bedroom. And, you know, and, and you want to see what's, you want to see what's, why, what, run your finger in the exclamation point on the Golden Girls door, which by the way, is just a, a painting error. But you want to know that stuff and nothing was giving it. So after I had started this career writing a little bit for TV Guide, I decided, okay, I want to write books about TV, but I want to do it the way that I would have wanted to read them, which is with extreme detail. And I, so I put together a proposal for the Golden Girls and in the meanwhile, something miraculous happened, which was that I was a, a introduced to an agent who had a deal with NBC. And I said, oh, do you have a deal with NBC? NBC published the Golden Girls, not realizing that Disney ABC actually was the copyright holder. Right. But said, you know, I'll let me show you this Golden Girls proposal. And she liked it. But she said, you know, actually, our first priority is to find someone to write a book about Will and Grace. And I was like, what? My other obsession? You know, and if you know Will and Grace, you might know that there's a storyline that went a running gag that went on for years where Jack was stalking Kevin Bacon. And when <laughs> Kevin Bacon finally made a cameo on the show, he hires Jack and Jack's first order of business is find my stalker. And I felt like me getting hired to write a book about Will yeah. and Grace was like that storyline playing out again. I'm like, well, I already am obsessed with them. I already, when I go to LA and try to get writing jobs, I'm always trying to be on that CBS Radford lot and hoping I might bump into them. So would I like to write about, yes. So it just, it like, all did happened. Did you find out way. about me? Did you see me? Yeah, exactly. Wait, uh, wait, is someone watching me watching them? I don't get it. So. I, I gladly accepted that assignment, wrote that book, it was not given a lot of time to write that book the way TV books are done. Um, but it then gave me credibility in the space because that was a very detailed book. And then I was able to turn around with this Golden Girls proposal and say, okay, you know that treatment I just did for Will and Grace that did really well, now let's do this for a show right. that has a huge following. Now, I know I'm, you, I'm, I'm like Charo. You asked me one question and I'm just talking for 20 minutes. This is what it's about. That's what we wanted. Yeah, this is my what Charo for. interview for the love boat. I, don't, I think I said, hello, Charo. And then there was an hour and a half of monologue. And I'm, I, it was so thickly accented. I have no idea if I transcribed it correctly. Um, Thank God it's not a uh, manual tapes anymore. You know. Oh my God, yes. Oh, I, I, I would have worn that thing out trying to go back. Played at half speed. Yeah. Oh, I already play at half speed. But the, <laughs> you know, when she says something like, then I was cleaning cucarachas out of my closet. You're like, what? <laughs> Oh, you were cleaning cucarachas out of your closet. Okay. Um, so it's, uh, she was hilarious. But so the problem with the then saying, oh, okay, no brainer. I did this book on Will and Grace. Let's do the Golden Girls. The Golden Girls is so popular. Well, in say this is 2002, 2004. I knew even in 2002 or 2004, after a decade of Golden Girls reruns on Lifetime, after the show was off the air, but I knew how popular it was. And you knew, and I'm sure everybody listening to this knew, but guess who didn't know? publishers yeah. and and the world you mean in the general, straight white guys yeah you know i was trying not to say it but you read my mind straight white guys <laughs> people who are not in the golden girls target audience but particularly publishers because publishers in new york have this snobbery where they love to brag about how little they know about television even if they're running the entertainment imprint of their of their <laughs> publishing company they love to be like i didn't watch television and i remember <laughs> one time meeting with when i was trying to sell the will and grace book meeting with a publisher who ran the entertainment division of a major publisher. And she comes into the meeting and she's 
dressed like a Valkyrie. She's just got these long flowing scarves and she's just dramatic like an actress. And she speaks with a fake English accent, even though she's got an Italian American last name. And she's just, oh, hello. And I was just like, this is, you've got to be kidding me. And at one point she was like, well, I don't watch television. And we never did when I was growing up. In fact, my father worked at the New York Times and he assigned us articles to read and discuss at dinner. But I do admit that occasionally I watch Frasier. And then <laughs> when they would send you an email, they'd make sure they misspelled Frasier to make sure that, that you knew that they were really just humoring you, that they didn't even watch Frasier. So that's what you, I was dealing with. Either that snobbery or the other pattern in publishing would be a young woman or gay guy at a publishing company would hear about my book proposal through my agent or even through me or somebody else mm -hmm. and would get all excited. Oh my God, of course, the Golden Girls is a huge thing. Why has there never been a book? I can't believe there have been books about these other shows and never the Golden Girls. And it would work its way up the ladder and then we'd find somebody in marketing and I'm gonna blame that straight white guy again. I have no idea if it was him, but <laughs> it would meet somebody in marketing who would be an older executive who would say, what? That's a show about old ladies. And it was from 10 years ago or 1.15 years ago. Nobody, who cares about that? That's stupid. And there would be no way to convince them. You don't understand. This is a phenomenon and it is growing, not shrinking. Um, and it, so it took a long time to find a publisher. Now, I happened to be at a wedding in 2006 and the groom's, the bride's man was a gay man who, ran a, a little LGBT publishing company. And so he and I struck up a friendship. And so hence the Q guide to the Golden Girls was born. Mm -hmm. And I happened to also in 2006, it just everything happened in the right order that it needed to. My husband was uh, appearing on a game show that was taping in LA, even though we lived in New York. And so we had two months where we would have to be living in a hotel in LA. And this was just before I met this publisher, but I said, you know, it's 2006. The ladies are 84, three of them are about 84, 83. Mm. They're not getting any younger. If I'm going to do this book, even though I don't have the deal in place yet, I better do these interviews. And so I met with, now Estelle turned out not to be well enough to do an interview, but I met with mm, people, yeah. her, her caretakers and her friends and her talk to her sons and all these people in her life to try to round that out. But I did sit with Betty and B in their living rooms in 2006, and it was not easy to get in the door, but at least I had the Will and Grace book behind me to say, I'm not a total crackpot. This is, I do write books. This will be a book, I promise. <laughs> I could um, be a stalker, but I'm also an I author. I could be a stalker, but I'm also an author. Yes, they're not mutually exclusive at any, at <laughs> by any means. Uh, and so I did sit with them and then I sat with Rue McClanahan shortly after I got back to New York. And so I was able to get those interviews. Susan Harris as well, I did in the, those months, which mm -hmm. I didn't realize what a coup that is because she's very private, but I don't know why she said yes to me and she did and it was wonderful. So I was able to get a real core of what I needed for research. And then, as I said, just by kismet, met the publisher from Allison Books and was able to do the cue guide to the Golden Girls. So I was so happy because... I couldn't believe that no one had written about the show before. There are multiple books about like Gomer Pyle, you know, shows that are not that good and that never had a fan base that lived on and got bigger, certainly. They mm -hmm. fan base of that, if anything, got smaller over time, which most shows do. I think only I Love Lucy and Golden Girls got bigger after in generations after the show was mm -hmm. on. And now maybe because of Netflix, I noticed my nieces who are 17 are watching Friends and The Office and some shows are right, going to start right, building right, right. it. But I Love Lucy and the Golden Girls were really it in terms of shows that were phenomenal decades later. 
So yeah, the Q Guide to the Golden Girls came out. I was able to plant my flag and say, Golden Girls book, first one, interviews with the real women and with Susan Harris and all that. And then uh, eventually try to get a larger book going that would include photos and other materials. Little did I know that would take 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there's so much in there. And I, I think actually that's a good uh, transition to like the next question, which is really about the process. And, and you know, you mentioned it was a 10 year process. Um, and I think you also referenced how much detail is in the book, which I think makes it so great for, for us. And even like, you know, for anybody who's interested because you can flip through and just like sort of casually look and, you know, see what you learn. But also if you're looking for something specific, you can go to that episode and like, you know, it's almost always like, what you think is maybe you have questions about is almost always covered, like, you know, either mm -hmm. uh, through like an interview with one of the writers or like just like in the in the initial summary is like it's addressed. And so um, I think like, you know, that sounds like such a, a bear of a process when we talk about how much is in the show and like also how much fans care about these things. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like what those 10 years entailed beyond the interviews and like how you got to a place from like I'm gonna try to put this all in a book to that actual book because it's all in there we, we you know as again like everybody I think uses it as a reference point um and so yeah I'd love to, to hear a little bit about that well you know those are really kind of two separate things and I, I'll, I'll talk about them both of course but those are two separate questions in a way I I, I have to say that uh, in those 10 years I was able to amass more interviews. So whereas in 2006 for the Q Guide, I talked to the biggies, mm -hmm. uh, Susan Harris and Paul Witt and Tony Thomas and three of the ladies and Estelle's friends and some guest stars. In those intervening 10 years, then I was able to add hundreds more guest stars and really go after everybody. So it was I was able to broaden it that way and get more detail that way. So that's part of the answer. I think that the other thing is that, I, it's just funny, I don't know how you would do a book any other way than detailed. And the reason why I say that is not just because, oh, I'm such a fan and I can, I have this magic way of getting details out of people. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying kind of the reverse, which is if you don't ask people detailed questions, all you get as an answer is a platitude, a very generalized right. platitude. So if you don't say, okay, in that episode, when you push the little girl out the door, Betty White, and grab the teddy bear, what were you feeling and whatever- right. And then she can say, oh, I remember that moment. Thank you for asking that. But if you just say, what was it like to work with a kid? The actor would say like, it was fun. Kids are fun. You know, all you'll get is platitudes as answers. If you just ask general questions, you're going to get general answers and it doesn't make for a book. So I don't know any other way to write a book about a show, particularly one from decades past where you have to jog their memories a little bit with details. I don't know how to do it any other way than to really start with the granular and the granular triggers stories. And sometimes it will trigger a more general feeling or story. And that's great too, but you can't have only that. You can't have only, you can't only sit down with Betty White and B. Arthur and say, well, is that fun to do the show? Did you like it? Um, remember that time that you look pretty? You know, you can't be <laughs> general. You have to, I don't know any other way. So that, and then what the, the leads into the other half of that question, which is I, this part maybe is unique to me or uh, other people do it this way and just don't articulate it the same way. But I, when I'm writing a book and it drives publishers crazy, I have to say, 
uh, uh, this t- kind of TV book, I write from the specific to the general. And what that means is when I transcribe it all, and when I go back and transcribe and listen, I'm, you know, little bells are going off. That's going in the book. That's going in the book. So you can hear it again and really start to shape it in your head. But I, when I hear a very specific factoid that comes from an episode, I'm most excited because I know exactly where that goes. It's like doing a puzzle and doing the frame first. Yes. You know, doing, I know exactly where that goes. It can only go in one place. Like if we're talking about uh, the, the moment, you know, I took an 84 year old woman and turned her into 65 year old drag queen. You, if you're dissecting that quote and how that storyline came about, well, guess what? That's only going to go in the write-up for that episode. Perfect. I know just where that puzzle piece goes. Mm-hmm. And so do that with all the specifics and fill in the frame of that puzzle. And then you have kind of a, a an outline of what you're doing. And then you know, okay, if I work, if I keep working from the specific to the general, then when I get to the things that are more about feelings or whatever, that's the stuff that you either put in that, you, you use as a quote in that interviewee's voice, or you paraphrase in your intro about the Golden Girls was important to people because it it showed the importance of friendship and the importance of surrogate family. And you, those are just more general themes and feelings that can go anywhere or in an overview, not in a granular episode way. So I love to work that way because it helps me. It, it, I feel like the book kind of writes itself in that way. When you start putting the puzzle pieces in, in places where all, they can only go, then what's left is what I as an author have to say and shape. But it's so much smaller than the bigger puzzle that it's easier to do it that way. It drives publishers crazy because they usually want to see pages as you go along. And they don't want to see the most granular episode pages first. If they if they say, can I see the first chapters of your book? They're expecting the first chapters are going to be my introduction and overview, which is how you do a book. But I wrote I write those last. So I say, sure, right. I'll send you I some know. chapters. That, that, that and it's a write-up. Right, right, exactly. So, But then I, when I say, sure, I'll send you some chapters, and I want to send them the write-up of, you know, the like the beep, beep, beep of the tom-tom from season six. They're like, that's not what I want to see first. That doesn't help me. I don't. I can't get a sense of the book from that. And I'm like, yeah, but the problem is I can. So <laughs> I'm always driving them nuts by, like, saving the stuff that they want to see till the end and keeping them in suspense. That, that whole thing, I mean, that's so funny. It, it's kind of such an antithesis of wanting to write the introduction first to what we were all taught in school, or at least I was, of like, right. you're writing your term paper. You can't write the intro. You don't even know what it's about yet, you know? Right. You know what it's about, but you don't know what it's about. <laughs> and that's well, what's tough is with pieces. these, yeah. and what's tough with these books, and I found this with The Love Boat more than The Golden Girls, is that you, in order to sell the book to the publisher, you need to write a book proposal. And in the book proposal, you do need to have some fun right. word work and wordplay and and thematic stuff and introduction. And you're writing that kind of blind because you haven't done the research yet. And so with Golden Girls, I kind of knew that I knew the story. With Love Boat, I was pretty sure that I, there were stories that I didn't know. And sure enough, I was right. There was a lot that I didn't know going into it until I did the research. But I had to write a book proposal as if I did. So you're kind of guessing and and trying to fake it. It's almost like faking a term paper where you didn't do your homework. Right. And you're trying to fake, fake writing the term paper. That's what your book proposal is like. And then only when you're doing the book do you realize, oh, I was so off based on that. Or, oh, I can go deeper into that. Or, oh, my God, here's a story that's really important that I had no idea. But yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's another part of it when you're trying to, you're, you're trying to appease the publisher and you're like, but I haven't done the homework yet. How would I know that? So I, you know, it's so funny that you, you did a lot of those interviews essentially on spec. Like you were just like, I have to capture them beforehand. Right. So you had some of that basis, right. And some of those details, I wonder, you know, in, in talking and having this, instead of asking the questions of saying, you look pretty, was it fun? Um, what did you get specific with certain people to say, 
in like you the example you just gave with Betty White when you know when she's pushing Jenny Lewis out the door um did you ask specific question because the book is so detailed in those individual episode chapters where a producer is remembering that fine detail about the one line or the one piece that made it out of the cut or you know whatever it is so what what's an example of like a, how an interview flow would go yeah I, I mean I never really planned the interviews because I want it to be what comes up naturally from their memories and you know you take what they give you and what they give you is usually good because they're reliving it as you're talking to them mm -hmm. uh but i do go in with like and i do it in a spreadsheet which also makes my publisher crazy because they think oh my god you're writing this book on excel or what kind of engineering nerd are you but i was like you don't understand all these details have to go in an order so that i can find them at a moment's notice um so i would go in literally with an excel spreadsheet on my computer that would have the top character moments for that person for that interviewee mm -hmm. sorted yeah. so like when I would make notes about moments in each episode, as I take notes about each episode, I'd be like, okay, that's a Rose moment. That's a, that's a Sophia moment. And then I'd sort it. So when I'd go in to sit with Betty, I'd sort it so that all the Rose moments are at the top of this spreadsheet and I can go and then by episode within that. So I could say, okay, let's walk through season one. This must've been an important moment for you, Betty, when you got to do this. Oh yes. Or sometimes it would be like, oh no, that was not, or the, it, sometimes it wouldn't trigger yeah. a story. But I would literally start with the, with that spreadsheet, but I wouldn't adhere to it religiously. If they would go off on another topic that oh, yeah. I would never have known about, great. And if I didn't get through all those moments in the interview time allotted, that would be a bummer, but maybe I could do it next time. Or maybe somebody else would end up giving me that story. So I wouldn't panic, but it would be, I really, I would go in, as I said, with those beats that I hoped to hit at some point, but it was, I wasn't adhering to them slavishly. That really makes it very clear in the book. When you are reading an episode pull out, it feels like you're sitting in the room with all those people and they're having a conversation with each other about it, even though we all know it's impossible because many yeah, of yeah. are certainly was not going to get all those people together in the same room. But yeah, <laughs> correct, I mean, correct. Yeah, but yeah. um, but I love that insight because having that prompt—that's exactly how conversations happen. You say something that you remember, or you know, jogged by an interviewer such as yourself, and you say, "Oh yeah," and then Lauren piggybacks off of that. I remember this too. Adds a detail, or it reminds her of some other tangent. So. That's actually a really, that's an interesting insight. I love the Excel spreadsheet. Well, as and then sometimes, thank you. And then sometimes I would be able to do that because as the interviews go on, now, if I'm asking about a certain Betty moment and I've already talked to Betty, now, if I want to ask B about that same moment and B's like, oh, I don't know if I remember, I can say, well, Betty said this. Betty and B me. could be like, oh, well, actually that's true, but also this. So they then would start to piggyback off each other. And then you could, you, you could use that conversational nature of it in the book. I love that. I love that. It comes through. It really does. And I oh, think it, it really builds that world that you were talking about that a fan wants to really dive into. And uh, yeah, it just, it feels like you're just chit-chatting with everybody. Well, good, good. I mean, yeah, I wanted it to feel like you really were walking around that set and you could look around and, oh, look at that, or look at that. Or I remember what happened over in this corner. And I remember what happened over there. You know, it, I really wanted the detail because as I said, to me as a kid, that was what always was lacking. Mm -hmm. What? Um, yeah. Do you have do you have another question, Lauren, about the book? Um, I, I, I feel I, like I'm railroading it. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, I I do have a I have a question. I guess like so as a queer person, also I feel like I also am always like just as I do on like anybody's wiki. I'm like, okay, is there anything gay in here? You know, like I'm trying to like get to the yeah. gay stuff. Yeah. And so I I I wonder like both like on both sides of the coin, like if it was as um you know like as you were talking to these producers and these writers, like if they 
basically shared anything about like their experience of being like, you know, a gay, gay person in Hollywood at that time. And like what the environment on the show was like, because I, I feel like while, um, you know, maybe internally it was like, uh, relatively accepted. Like, I feel like there's a lot of, uh, I, there's a lot of like gay man writing stamps on the show as you kind of go through, you can see it. Um, and also like how it was for you as, as a gay person, like, you know, trying to sort of like market this and like sort of, you know, it's, it's queer canon content. I think you're like pulling something that I could see, um, you know, like in different times throughout our history and sadly maybe like now in some states, you know, like having some, some pushback there. And so I wonder if any of that, uh, you know, like what your experience was with that and, and what the writers and producers shared around um, their own like queer identities. I'm so glad you asked that. And there are so many parts of that answer and you're going to be surprised by some of them, probably shocked and disappointed by some of them, but surprised <laughs> by some of them. Sounds right. Details. <laughs> yeah, the, overall, yeah. <laughs> the overall first thing that I have to say is that you're too young, but if you remember what 1985 was like, okay, very little gay visibility anywhere. Right. Certainly on television. AIDS had just started happening in 1981. By 1985, it was a full panic among the, everybody who, some people who didn't know still, I don't know how they didn't know if they didn't watch the news, how it was, how HIV was spread. So people were straight, people were still panicked that they could get it from a toilet seat or from a kiss or from a, you know, a handshake. Some of them, not all, certainly. Yeah. But there was enough of that out there. So you put that all together and whatever strides the LGBT community had started making after Stonewall and in the 70s with the sexual revolution just came to a screeching halt in a way because of all the fear around the gay community with AIDS. So you put that in that context. Now, the funny thing is that the Love Boat, which I'm writing about now, started in 77, even earlier, but pre-AIDS, so maybe when things could have been loosening up a little, and went to 86 overlapped only by one season with Golden Girls. By the way, Golden Girls helped kill Love Boat on Saturday night. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, Golden Girls from 85 to 93. You'd think that those eras are somewhat similar, but because of AIDS, they really there really was a shift and a fear that happened in the later years. And when I the reason I bring up Love Boat is because if you watch that show, in all of the hundreds of stories they did on that show, because there were three stories per episode times nine years of episodes, there was one gay character, Doc's fraternity brother, who came on board with his boyfriend, who he passed off as his cousin. We find out that it's not his cousin, but they never use the words gay, homosexual, lover, anything. It's all implied. But that's still the only time they even dared tackle it. And The Love Boat was written by a lot of gay writers and producers, some of whom were closeted, most of whom were out in their small circle, which is the way life was in the 70s, or in, certainly in Hollywood. But the producer, Art Bayer, um, the executive producer, Doug Kramer, was bisexual and had a boyfriend by that point, point had divorced his wife. Um, there were other gay writers and producers, quite a few gay men. And I don't know about women. There were, I know of one lesbian, actually, but not many. But a lot of gay men writing the straightest show, like the glove <laughs> book. You think that's the straightest show on earth. And then you get to the Golden Girls and you think, oh, well, that's going to be a big bunch of gays writing that. And it really was not. There were very few. There were, I'd say in every era of the show, meaning like seasons one through four were kind of one writer's room and seasons five through seven were another. And then there was a little overlap. In every era of the show, there would be either a freelance writing team where either one or both members were LGBT 
or there would be a staff member team. Um, but that would be it. Like at most one or two gay voices in the room, sometimes none. And yet look at all of the times that the Golden Girls went for it. And I, when I was putting together the Q guide, my pitch to Ellison Books was, okay, we're not going to do the giant book because that's not what you do, the giant illustrated photo book. So we're going to focus on the episodes that have queer content or queer meaning. And sometimes queer meaning means it just had a hunky guest star like Burt Reynolds. But, but often what I meant is there is a queer reference in the episode that resonates with people. I, when I said that to the publisher, I thought this is going to be a short, easy book to write. There's going to be like three of those. Okay. Clayton appeared twice. Gene appeared once. That's it. Blah, blah, blah. Oh my God. No, there are queer jokes all throughout the show. Even just a quick moment where they'll mention, you know, Blanche says her theater director is gay and that's why he didn't cast her and he cast Phyllis Hammerow. And right. with just, you know, something that has nothing to do with the storyline, just a quick throwaway that they weren't afraid to go for. And when I asked those writers about the, why they did it. Now, I'm going to say something bad about the writers and then I'm going to give them a lot of credit. The thing that I say bad about the writers that I learned from a gay writer who was on the show in season one, Stan Zimmerman, and he has said this publicly, is that AIDS panic was so prevalent, even in Hollywood, that he remembers coming into the Golden Girls writer room, writer's room in, during his run on the show and they asked, what do you do this weekend? And he could never be out in the writer's room, even though they, the writers would probably have been receptive because they were that lib liberal enough for him to, he could have been taking them into it, but he could, didn't feel comfortable being out in right. 1985. And so when they said, what do you do this weekend? He said, I went to a garage sale in West Hollywood. There were people, maybe not in the writer's room, maybe it was crew. I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate anybody, anybody's memory specifically. But he said, there were people who said, a garage sale in West Hollywood. West Hollywood, there, AIDS is everywhere. You you have sweaters from there. I hope you burned them. Like, don't wear those. Ugh. And, you know, it was just people who were terrified or there would be people who said, you know, I went to a restaurant in West Hollywood. You went to a restaurant where gay waiters could serve you? What if they bled in your food? You know, it was that, that was the mindset. Even among people who viewed themselves as liberal, they would still mm -hmm. have that fear because there was enough of the unknown still to the AIDS epidemic, the AIDS pandemic. So that's that's what I'm going to say negative about them that that they weren't saints in that they were just as vulnerable to fear as the general public in that way. Mm -hmm. However, what I give them credit for is that they already realized that with the Golden Girls, here we are talking about older women, older women who are usually pushed aside and marginalized the moment they're no longer sexually the icons for young guys to whack off to. Let's face it. <laughs> so you know, here are, the, here are women and, you know, they're calling Golden Girls. Rue was 51. I'm 53 right now. It, it kills me that they were Golden <laughs> I Girls. I know. But they were called Golden Girls. In other words, they were already put out to pasture at 51 and older. Um, and so the writers realized we have this concept that already is groundbreaking and already is showing an, a slice of life that nobody else is showing because everybody else puts women out to pasture by 51. And we get this all to ourselves. They realize this is an advantage for us because we're telling stories that nobody else is telling. We have this playing field all to ourselves. And of course they also happen to be brilliant writers and so they made the most of it, but they knew, oh my God, let's keep doing that. Let's go to other areas of life that nobody has the, the guts to tackle and let's show more of that. And so the LGBT community was perfect. And it was also perfect because the ladies being older women, let's face it, they'd been around the block. They had encountered gay people in their lives before. They were not young, 
you know, young co-eds at a Christian college, you know, clutching their pearls if they heard about a gay, ooh, a gay person. They were women who were worldly. And, you know, maybe not Rose. Rose wasn't too worldly, but Dorothy was, and Blanche was, and Sophia was. They were worldwide. They had met gay people. They were cool with it. So let's bring in gay people for them to interact with and show that slice of life that nobody else is showing. Even if it is just in a moment where you mention my theater director's gay and that's why he didn't cast me because he likes to, you know, normally I sleep with the director. That's a great joke because it's a great Blanche joke about how she gets parts by sleeping with the director. But it's also brilliant because it reflects a little bit of what would really be going on in Miami in 1985, mm -hmm. a gay presence. And it reflects the real world in a way that nobody else is has the guts to do. Therefore, it makes the audience laugh because part of the laugh is, wow, they went there. I'm so excited they went there. So when Lauren, when you mentioned like the, yeah, the queer elements of the show, it brings up all of this in me. It brings up my disappointment in the world in general, not just the Golden Girls writers for what they feared about AIDS and, and how they would be afraid of the gay community. But it also brings up my, my pride in the Golden Girls writers that they were smart enough, both as business people and uh, to, to go to an uncharted niche and claim it for themselves, but also as creatives to give us what we needed in the world. We needed a lot, of, there's, there's stuff about AIDS in Golden Girls, that one episode that made one of the, the editors and later directors, Peter Bate, who was editing that episode, made him weep because he had a lover who was dying at that point of AIDS and there was no one he could talk to about it because it still wasn't talked about much in society and in public. And he felt when he was, it's in, this, in my, the stories in my book, but he felt that when he was editing that episode, and by the way, he hadn't known what the episode was about when it was handed to him. He was like, someone's finally seeing me and speaking about what I'm going through on television and it's never happened before. So can you imagine I as a gay teen, closeted gay teen, but even old people older than me who were out and who maybe were HIV positive, what that meant to them to see it on their TV on a Saturday night. So the question about the queer elements of the show and the queer presence in a way disappoints me because there weren't as many queer people behind the scenes as you think. And yet the straight people did a great job. So I'm not taking it away. From <laughs> and it also fills me with pride. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's so powerful. And I, I think like the subtleties, like you're saying, like the gay theater director. And, and sometimes I do feel like, like there's like a nod a joke for like a queer audience like straight yes. people might get it but like there's a little bit of like a you know like a head nod that that's being thrown around so um well, yeah I love is, that the, is that the bull duck that yeah the bull duck like up? yeah yes, yeah exactly so great moments that you know you might not get the joke it might go over your head like they expect it to go over kids heads i have to say one of the the gay writers who was on the show for a good long time was mark cherry he started in season mm -hmm. five and went on through that and golden palace and of course went on to a huge career mm -hmm. and he had been a fan of the show before he got hired. And when he got hired and he went in on his first day, like the first day of season five, he was like, oh, goody, it's going to be a big bunch of gays in this room and we're going to have so much fun. And he walks in and he was the only gay person. Well, he and his writing partner, who was also gay, they were the only gay people. And he, they were sitting around and the, the guys who wrote the show were talking about a boxing match. And he was like, I have wandered into another dimension. What is going on here? So, you know, that's just what talented writers that these people were. And that's one of the reasons that even though I am completely, of course, pro-diversity, I also stand up for the viewpoint that artists should be able to do 
what they can do well, whether it matches their own skin color and their own gender and their whatever or not. Because here's an example. There were, shamefully, there were shamefully too few female writers for the Golden Girls, definitely. Mm-hmm. And yet it's a great show and it means a lot to, to viewers of all genders. So it's a complicated issue when you get into that. And that's why I stand for both sides. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say is that I have then asked a lot of these straight male writers, how did you write so gay for the Golden Girls? <laughs> what, where did you find that within you? Is there a well of gayness inside you that you would only let out in the, the comfortable confines of that writer's room? And they'd say, the, my favorite answer to that was someone saying, no, there's just a special alchemy that exists when a straight male writer puts met words in the mouth of B. Arthur, it comes out gay. That's, of course, yeah. <laughs> Love that. Your, yeah, that's your my favorite point answer. Earlier, your point earlier about like how it's a marginalized community, they're all different types, and in su- you know, they're obviously all different, and everybody has individual struggles and unique struggles, especially depending on the power play of just you know the establishment at large at in the time period and the location that you are, etc. But a marginalized community, it, it, if you boil it down, does have a, almost you know a quality that could be stretched across any other marginalized community, and right. I think. What's so interesting, and this comes up so often, right, and especially with the the scholars that have written about, you know, we talked about this with Elliot Powell, we talked about this with Kate Brown, uh, they're having, you know, like, again, having these older women who, as you say, were put out to pasture, it still astounds me. I remember there was a meme going around about, like, Jennifer Lopez is older than Rue McClanahan. Jennifer Lopez is, like, yeah, she's, yeah, she's my, born the same year as me, a few months older, so she's 54. <laughs> And Rue was 51 as Blanche and yeah, a golden I mean, it's girl. Time to change right? it. Yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. Thank but, God, but thank that God. You could actually extrapolate. And again, these straight male writers were not, you know, these these women. They were not as old as these women. However, there's something to it there. And I think that that really digs into the heart of why this show has stretched beyond multiple generations and continues to have appeal is because that no matter who you are watching this you have if if you are not queer you know if you are not a woman if you are not a person of a certain age etc you have some understanding of the situations the various situations these people are going through it's just humanity well right and there's there's kind of a built-in paradox to humanity about how everyone can feel like an outsider it's like and how could everyone be an outsider but and yet just about everybody can. If you are a woman, you're an outsider. If you're queer, you're an outsider. If you are a person of color, you're an outsider. If you're old, outsider. Immigrant, mm-hmm. outsider. When you look at, I mean, you would have to be one very specific middle of the bullseye as a, you'd have to be a straight, white, Christian, male, born in this country. But I mean, all the things that we talk about in the Republican Party that they don't have empathy for anybody else. <laughs> would have to be that one specific type of person, maybe not to feel like an outsider. And even then, there's probably a reason why you did. We all- Or, or they feel, feel like it than. anyway, right? Right, as we've right. Seen. that's what I mean. We're all made to feel less than, even just because of our personality or whatever, right. or your disability or, you know. So, so the paradox is that just about every viewer in the world can, can watch this show and empathize with their outsider perspective because they feel like an outsider themselves, whether it's because they're women or because they're something else. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And it cuts to, I mean, you know, we, uh, a couple of years ago, now I can't remember what, when it was, Lauren, we put together a list of uh, all of the dark themes, the dramatic themes that we could think of in 
Golden Grass. And it was really interesting because it's basically almost every shit thing that could happen to a human, you know? I mean, we we cover nuclear war here. You know what I mean? Like there's there's a lot (laughs) that's going on in the series. Um, But yeah, even those small things, even just, you know, like being broken up with or just being marginalized by your friend and just like small hurts, big hurts, medium hurts, everything that happens, like you said, the paradox of being human is that at one point in your life, you're gonna feel it. It it has played out on screen, but it's also been written so well, it's been performed so well, it's been shot so well that that just lasts. And I think uh, it's, yeah, it's it's really fabulous. And it's so fascinating to know that it could come from kind of a group of people that weren't quite as diverse as you think they were. I mean, maybe they were in terms of, I mean, a lot of the oh, writers, for example, were Jewish. So in the, right. maybe in Hollywood, that's not as unusual, but it is unusual in the wider world. And mm-hmm. we certainly see anti-Semitism today. And so I'm sure growing up, a lot of them had outsider feelings for that reason. Totally. And there were some women, there was only woefully one person of color the entire time. But there, as I said, everybody has an outsider feeling for one reason or another. And, uh, and I think that the, you again that's why i say writers should be given the opportunity because if you can tap into that feeling and turn it into a story for these women credibly and that the audience responds to and doesn't say okay that's totally ridiculous if you can do it and do the job well great and that just proves that we all are the same we're all human and have those feelings mm-hmm. what um so going more into like the journalistic <laughs> way that you kind of approach these books and things i mean was there any feeling i feel like we've had this podcast, you know, we're in season seven, we're, we're coming to close to the end here. Um, and now do a golden I, palace I, season, do a golden palace. I, yeah. <laughs> hey, that's so good. We named it's, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that's their space. So that's their there? thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, um, I think that, you know, I, I thought I would not that I thought I would get sick of it or tired of it, like get really pulling it apart, but there is something about taking something you love, and that you're obsessed with and also and and really digging into it and like you said sometimes finding things that are quite not as nice or as rose colored or as you were talking about before when you put in the you know your your proposal you're like ah taking a shot in the dark here it might go a wildly yeah. different direction so right. can you talk about some feel i mean over 10 years of course but some feelings that you had in the throes of it you know was there anything that really stood out as like either a disappointment or took you in a different direction of something that you've never thought about before in terms of the show no i think that it was really that i had a feeling that these writers must have been well-intentioned people because they were tackling things that back in the day were groundbreaking that aids episode that was one of the 72 hours was the third sitcom literally to talk about it and following designing women by like a month or two and Mr. Belvedere of all places uh, as well. Wow. <laughs> but still so early and, and, and early for television, it's shameful how that it was 1990, nine years after it started. And that was early for television. That's shameful. Mm-hmm. But that, that shows how, how deep seated that fear was that TV only got to it then or sitcoms only got to it then. And then homelessness there, they tackle homelessness quite a bit. That mm-hmm. of course is a, an even bigger problem now but it was first coming to the fore as a problem and not just calling them bums or whatever but really taking into effect that it was a phenomenon that is multifaceted and that it was a societal problem to solve that that consciousness only happened in the 80s before that as i said you'd see you'd see shows from the 40s or 50s that would you know show the the stereotypical bum with a hobo sack drinking out of a and it would they'd be the gag 
it wouldn't be like this is a problem for society it would be like that so that's why i'm saying that that consciousness was just switching in the 80s and the girls went right for that there were a lot of things that they were tackling for you know among the first time if not the first time so i always realized that the show must have been really well intentioned um you know and sometimes your heroes have quirks that some you know that you realize makes them human and but not necessarily a saint and i learned some of those along the way with yeah, writers yeah. and stars and and it, it, that takes me aback when i learned something like that about anybody and it's happened on every book i've written where there's been a, a writer or a star where i think oh perfect person everything they say is right or whatever <laughs> then you hear one thing you're like oh that, I, that disappoints me for about 30 seconds. Then I realized, oh, right, they're human. That actually makes me right. like them just as much, if not more, because, mm -hmm. oh yeah, and they got over it and they didn't, you know, that that one quirk of theirs didn't show up in the show and it's not something major. You know, it. I don't know. I just, that's what, I, I guess, if you ask me what surprises me, it's a weird answer. It surprises me when I find out that the people I admired are not perfect and then I end up admiring them as just as much anyway. Right. Right, exactly. Hey, it's kind of like any relationship in real life, right? Like you, yeah. you make deeper friendships and relationships when you actually when get to know a person real. for all their flaws. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. for sure. You know, I love Lauren more when I found out. You know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I, I don't. That doesn't apply to me. So yeah, no, no, of course. You're the only you're the exception. After all those things you told me about Lauren, you still like her? I know. It's fascinating, right? <laughs> Um, um, yeah, I think that that's like, so I just want to shine a light a little bit on that because I think it, it's sort of, it's applicable to so many interactions really, I, I think in, in our everyday lives too, of like, you know, we often see somebody through like a singular lens. And then when we widen that a bit and we see that there's like one thing that we're not like that we didn't expect or we didn't like or whatever, it's easy to be like, oh, is everything I thought about that person wrong? And, right. and, you know, the answer is no. It's just like, you didn't know everything and you have to open it a bit. And I think that, or that sometimes also the like, answer is yes. Like some, if, right. you know, sometimes the answer if is you were yes. like, sometimes oh, I always thought this person was cool and good looking and good performer. And then they're posting, I love Hitler. Okay. Yeah. Everything I thought about them was wrong. They're pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, if you voted for Trump, you're out. Yeah, like, that's exactly. it. I don't need so to. So sometimes, yeah. you know, that's why life is complicated because there are no rules. There's right. no rule even about the rules. You, yeah. you know, sometimes somebody, you find out something about somebody and it does ruin them forever. But most of the time, when I find out something about somebody, it's a minor interaction or it's subjective that from somebody else's viewpoint may not even be true. And then you realize, all right, I have to weigh it and still realize I love what they did on this show. And I still admire that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I think like, you know, that's that's sort of relevant to the next thing, which I I... I know you have gotten asked before, and I think kind of anybody who's in this Golden Girls uh, arena gets asked this question, but what do you think makes it have such a, a longstanding, dedicated fan base? Like, it, you know, things are still, products are still being made that are totally original products with the Golden Girls on it, and people are still, like, discovering the show and loving it. And, you know, I just, uh, I think there is a renaissance, um, you know, in, in, in other pop culture uh pieces as well but it doesn't feel doesn't feel like there are many peers for how large the renaissance for the golden girls has been so right, right. uh what do you think how, where does that come from i think that it is they hit several targets perfectly <clears throat> excuse me because for example friends is growing and it will continue to grow now that I think that it's on streaming and younger audiences will find it. And there's more Friends merchandise lately than I had seen in a while. Mm -hmm. And so I think Friends will continue to do that. 
I think Friends hits a lot of the targets too, but maybe not all of them that the Golden Girls do. Friends is, I think it hits the surrogate family target because it's the same kind of thing. Like, you know, you know a show is a surrogate family when they do a Christmas episode and you're hoping that they all don't get to go home and see their families and they <laughs> have Christmas together, right? Yeah. You know a show's doing it right when that happens. And that happened on Friends, it happened on Golden Girls. Yeah. Um, so so the, uh, the surrogate family target, ding, they both hit, hit that. Golden Girls too, I think, in terms of issues, it's talking about issues that were in the 80s alive and well, and for the most part, they don't age. And it's sad that they don't, they because they haven't gotten any better. Homelessness has not gotten any better. There's still homophobia. There's still a lot of the problems that they talked about. There's still issues about healthcare for older people. There's still prejudice against older Americans. There's still racism. So there's still immigration, like the immigration episode, immigration yeah. problems with Mario Lopez. So everything old is new again in terms of that. And so when you get that combination of smart, well-intended writing delivered perfectly by these performers about something that still talks to us today, of course, it's still going to work and it's still going to be popular. And not every show has that. Some shows don't have the same kind of tackling of an episode of an issue head on, or they don't have all the right performers, or they rely on dated cultural references. Now, Golden Girls does a little bit of that, but they didn't do a lot of dated cultural references. So I just think the Golden Girls kind of stuck to that lane of let's talk about what it's like to be an older woman in this world of all pro of so many problems. And that is timeless. I mean, honestly, it's, it's so, it resonates so much as we've said, and as we all know, everybody listening to this podcast <laughs> knows how much it resonates. And we yeah. often reference, um, you know, this uh, quote, this like ancient quote from uh, a Greek philosopher that's, you know, you never cross the same river twice. It's not the same river and it's not the same you. And I think in in that zeitgeist, you mention all these things that have not changed society writ large. And we talked about earlier about how any marginalized community, anybody can find themselves in either a character of the show, a storyline of the show, a guest star of the show, whoever, at, at some point in the episode. I'm confident that True. anybody watching it could find it in those seven seasons. Um, True. And, and, and those characters were created to be archetypes. And I, I wish I could right. remember the full list. Mark Cherry... Uh, one time told me it's the baby it's the son like there were names for the four types of people and i wish i could oh, remember well, what, debbie, what debbie milliman we we uh interviewed her and she yeah. actually debbie macy her, De i'm sorry De debbie macy that's right that's right <laughs> debbie milliman's roxanne guys gaze yeah um <laughs> shout out to her too she's great <laughs> yeah she's great but we don't know her. <laughs> but yes debbie you're right debbie macy um and wendy wendy logia uh no wendy burns artelino there we go got it um both of them wrote about how they match those ancient female yes. archetypes so right. you know right. Sophia is the the wise one she's yeah. wisdom of course and then um Dorothy's the strong one the stoic Rose is the naive or the baby like the baby. you said yeah. and then of course Blanche is the the harlot the sexy one right. <laughs> so, always the slut I know but they do they are I mean these are like ancient stories right the same thing like and you re-watch it and you you know and I've, I've known I know you've said this in interviews before Jim where you're just like my favorite golden girl changes it, yes. based on the day based on how I feel and it's sort I of you know it's interesting I would say Dorothy however you know gun to my head but you relate to each of them in their own way and everybody is part of them in their own way. And yes. that, you know, that whole thing about 
not the same river, not the same you. This is why somebody could watch it when they were 15 and watch it when they were 25 and watch it when they were 53 or whatever it is um, <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's going to change based on your life experience. You're going to find new things and you're going to find different kind of comfort in those surrogate families. So it's yes. just really, yeah. Yeah. yeah and so different lines jump out at me at different times, just in the past few nights, little things that I, I, I thought were throwaways before never noticed as much were making me laugh. You know, Ro- uh, Dorothy the other night saying, to Rose, Rose said, are you thinking about what I'm thinking for dinner? And Dorothy's like, yeah, pizza. And Rose says, do you want to get the, and it was something like the whole week crust. And Dorothy's like, no, why don't we just smear tomato sauce and some cardboard pizza, damn it, I want pizza. And just the way she said it, I'm like, oh my God, that's so real. And that's so how I feel. And I, that, that didn't really strike me before until I was just listening right. to it now. And I was like, oh my God, maybe, and that's making me want pizza right now. So maybe that's why I'm hungry and I'm thinking of it. But just the way Dorothy <laughs> delivered it and the way it was so real, just these little moments, it's such a rich show and so layered that mm-hmm. I can watch these episodes over and over and different things jump out at me at different times. Right. Totally. Yeah. I think that we all, I think, yeah, I think that that's totally true. And it's interesting too to have started watching when you were so young. Cause I think like who you relate to in these conflicts often changes too. Mm-hmm. And yes. that's true of, of all shows, but the Golden Girls, I think, provide so many opportunities to, to feel it. You're so, um, and so, so it's right. like your own growth. Yes, you're so right. And in fact, one of the things that I learned in writing the book, at, and I would say that from the time I was watching it, I was 16 as it debuted, or three days from 16 as it debuted. So I think I was old enough that I always identified with Dorothy. But when NBC tested the show, and you know, the show you can read in the book, it had an unlikely path to the air, and you can sense that that would be, I mean, you could sense how that would be because it would, you would never get a show like that on the air even today. About four old ladies, you know, it's so <laughs> still so sexist and ageist and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when NBC did go for it out of, by some miracle and they tested the show, they thought, okay, this is where this journey is going to end because the test results are going to come back and it's going to say only 85 year olds are going to watch this. And now, now we have an excuse not to put it on the air. And instead the test results came back and said, everybody's going to watch this. And they were shocked. And one of the things it said is that young kids, like really little kids, identified with Sophia because she was tiny and mischievous and stood <laughs> up to Dorothy. And so they saw themselves in Sophia. And so, so wow, what kind of sturdy show, sturdily built show is that, that an audience member who's six years old can identify with someone and someone who's 86 years old can identify mm-hmm. with that same character or others. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, so actually, I do want to switch gears slightly because you've referenced a few times this uh, a love boat book that's coming yeah. out. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that, and also like while we're talking about the love boat and you know long running shows, uh, pop culturally, there's so much overlap of like guest stars. I feel like so oh, like yes. for people who know the Golden Girls and don't know Love Boat at all. Uh, let's sell your book to them. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, first of all, Rue did The Love Boat multiple times. I'd say four. It's, I always forget because depending upon whether you count two-parters as one or Is two episodes. Is that many? Yeah, wow. Rue, did, Rue did it, I'm going to say three or four times. Um, again, I don't remember based on two-parters, but- um, It's in your book, one, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, exactly. Thank you. I, yeah, I can't even remember the number of episodes as I'm saying it. Um, there was one where she was being, she was an abused wife being beaten up by Dick Van Patten. There was one where she was an ignored wife with Dabby, Dabney Coleman. There was uh, there was another one where she was running uh, like a beauty 
uh, pageant thing with Don Wells was from Gilligan's Island was like one of the fellow judges. Just it was it's such a weird pop culture fever dream that people show up in weird permutations. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, my God, it's Blanche and Marianne. OK, sure. Right. But uh, and Betty came on multiple times, most of the time as the same character. Not there were a few others, but most of the time as the same character who was the best friend of Carol Channing's character. And they would do musical numbers, which was so much fun. So Sold. if you love the Golden <laughs> Girls, I mean, just for Betty and Rue alone, but then of course, so many other guest Golden Girls guest stars would show up on the Love Boat as well. You know, Jean the Lesbian showed up on the Love Boat, not as a lesbian, but as, <laughs> as someone else. So uh, it, that uh, what I loved about that show, and it was my Saturday ritual before the Golden Girls was my Saturday ritual. And that one started when I was really little, started when I was eight years old. So I was really a kid staying home on a Saturday night. But uh, it was a lot of people's Saturday ritual. And, it, you know, if you were in a snowy climate like I was in January in New Jersey, you were loving seeing people in Mexico for an hour on your screen. But it was yeah. just it 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 did what surprised me about it. And again, I didn't know it when I wrote the proposal and I was really flying blind, is that in its own subversive way, it was kind of groundbreaking. It didn't tackle the gay issue other than that one time. And it was very timid and it didn't tackle it didn't put black and white people together ever except for one time and they only th think they got away with it because the black woman was blind so i guess that makes it fine that she's dating a white guy because she can't see him it makes a sense. Dave Chappelle sketch yeah I know. <laughs> crazy so they, there were things they were timid about and yet there were other things that they took it they they went for it and there was a pretty groundbreaking storyline about breast cancer and there was there were stories about spousal abuse and there were stories about racism even if they weren't putting black and white people together on their own boat and so I still, I, I look back at that show and think, oh, they were helping advance civilization and ideas all while selling it to you with these Isaac's Hurricane drinks and sombreros. And right. you know, they were flashing a sombrero on your face so you didn't notice they were also teaching you a little lesson. And it, it really was groundbreaking in a lot of ways. It, it was uh, a show that brought America or Americans who famously don't have passports to all these foreign exotic ports of call and introduced us to new countries and a little bit of their traditions. Not a lot, you couldn't do a lot in an hour, but it would bring foreign countries into our living rooms. Conversely, it would bring these American actors when they did do real cruises around the world as kind of ambassadors, like cultural ambassadors where fans from around the world, when this the show played in 90 something countries, fans from around the world would flock to see the Love Boat film. And so it, it helped open up our, our cultural exchange with China they almost shot in Russia and then something happened, but they didn't. Um, but the show had all of these elements to it that were opening up the world, even in terms of production techniques, because they used rear projection where now today you'd use green screen, but they also were able to shoot on real boats and power from the boat's power supply and all this technical stuff that they even invented and able to be able to do this show. This silly little puffball of a show that we all discount <laughs> as the silly puffball of a show, I was so happy and again, almost proud to learn yeah. as I delved into it, that it actually was more than a puffball, that it had all these little things that it was doing that you may not know about, but that were kind of important. That That's a brilliance of TV and movies. I mean, when you were talking about how you're just like, okay, like, look at pretty surrounding, pretty surrounding statement about culture. Right. You know, it's right. like, it's kind, of, it's kind of the same with the Golden Girls, right? You're like, cute little grandma. Oh shit, we're talking about AIDS, you know? Right, like, oh well, it's God. that spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. And that's why comedies, <laughs> comedies have, I always posit, have done just as much as dramas to help move the world forward. I mean, when, yeah. I was just talking about this with somebody yesterday. I think that 
people, and that's why I'm so glad that you talk about an intellectual approach, by the way, to the Golden Girls. I'm so proud that you do that because I think that there are enough people, and maybe that editor I met with at, at uh, the, the imprint who said, I didn't watch television, but it would be one of them. There are so many people who want to discount sitcoms as fluff. And yes. oh, multicam sitcoms. And we sometimes theater reviewers, when they want to say a comedy isn't funny, they call it sitcom-y. We've, we've taken sitcom and made it a bad word because yeah. we've allowed the worst of sitcoms to represent them. Yes, there are bad ones that have too much hand laughter, if, if not mm-hmm. audience laughter that is unwarranted. There are bad ones. But the good ones have done so much for our world and have really helped advance civil rights and all of these other areas and brought awareness to things. And so when people talk about how does pop culture influence the world, I think they wanna give credit rightfully so to films like Philadelphia or or a film that will be heart-wrenching and gut and an Oscar bait performance by a top actor ripping his or her guts out and showing them to you on screen. Great, all the credit in the world to those people but there's just as much credit should go to people who are teaching you those lessons while making you laugh because they're sneaking them in there and you're learning them. <laughs> right. And what better way to sneak them in, right? You're just yeah, like, sometimes you're full in of the sugar. mood to laugh. Exactly. You want to relax and, you know, enjoy. And then, yeah, sometimes you, you end up sobbing because, you know, Phil died. All right. That, yeah. That's the moment I but, always point out that they go from making you laugh that episode and then the power of that writing and of Estelle's acting that mm-hmm. she can say, my, you know, my, my little boy is dead or whatever the exact line is. And in a downbeat, have you crying 30 seconds after it was funny? It's just, incidentally, do you ever avoid some of those episodes that went upon rewatch where you're like, oh, God, I can't handle this, you know, because I do. (laughs) I don't actually. And I know the ones people are talking about because they are among my least favorites too. But I always, and I say this about Golden Palace as well. And I say this about, I'm going to say that I, I'm the record that I love and just like that, the Sex and the City reboot, but I hear so much negativity about it. <laughs> and what I say about Golden Girls is true. What I say about Will and Grace is what I say about Sex and the City. And it's what I say about pizza, which is that even bad pizza is good. Yes, <laughs> true. And so even, you know, when you get served a really bad pizza and you still eat it and it's still not so bad. Yeah. Right? The worst episodes of Will and Grace or the worst episodes of Sex and the City or the worst episodes of the Golden Girls are still good. They're still fun. Mm-hmm. There's still something. People hate that empty nest spinoff with uh, Rita Moreno and Paul Dooley. You know what? There are a couple scenes in the girls' living room where there's some strong jokes. It's kind of funny. So okay, yeah, funny. there's things I definitely things I don't like about it. I'm glad it wasn't a series. Of, it was not, that was not good. <laughs> but I still watch that episode because there's, the girls are in it and they say there's some funny stuff going on there. Same thing with I, I'm not a huge fan of the preacher episodes like Brother, Can You Spare That Jacket? Mm-hmm. Or even Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah. Um, and I love that actress, Julie McCullough. I've been at Golden Con with her and she's wonderful. And there are things about that episode I love. I just find the, 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 the moralizing a little heavy handed. Sometimes you can go over the line by mistake. And yet I still enjoy them. I still watch them mm-hmm. because there's still good stuff about it. Right, for sure. Yeah, I it's it, like you said, just like pizza. I mean, I'm, I have, like you know, everybody knows who listens to our show that Mr. Terrific takes oh. the cake for me. Uh, oh, yes. So oh, I should have <laughs> mentioned that one right off the bat. Yeah, even more <laughs> than those, it's Mr. Terrific. That is true. Yeah. That one always annoyed me. And yet again, there are still parts of it I like. Exactly. And I, exactly. when I interviewed that actor for the book, I expected, I was a little afraid because I thought, what if he finds out or consents that I don't like that episode? And you know what? A really smart actor 
telling you why he made the choices he made and telling you fun stories about hanging out with B and Betty. <laughs> you like the episode more. And having met Bob yeah. Dishke and interviewed him, now I watch Mr. Terrific. And maybe the reason I didn't think you to mention it as one of my least favorites is because I like it more than I used to because of yes. him. So right. that, that's, I, I, I'm, as I said, I, I tend to flow, go with the flow. My favorite girl, it depends on what day you ask me. My least favorite episode depends on what day you ask me and who I've <laughs> yeah. talked to recently, who's impressed me. <laughs> Exactly. Well, like you were saying before, you find out a flaw in somebody's character or you find out details about something that you thought was flawed. And then, you know, it kind of broadens it a little bit for you. Yes. Oh, so. I, my famous story. I, I don't think it'll be so bad to tell this on the air. <laughs> I when I was writing for a print magazine, CBS's print magazine, I was assigned to cover CSI Miami and interview David Caruso specifically. And I remember saying to my editor, I watch the show. I actually really like the show, but I almost do it despite David Caruso's character because it's so over the top. He's deliberately <laughs> always like whipping off the yeah. and now we're going to get him. Like with some It's really a shame we don't have the visual him. for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> off my you know, it's always like, it, there's always some play on words, double on Chandra and, and about getting the bad guy and he rips off the sunglasses and it's so over the top. And that I was just like, if I were in that real world of crime fighting, what would I think about this guy? Would I think this man's insane? <laughs> He's got a tick where he rips off his glasses every five minutes and says something bizarre. Like I, I really was had trepidation about talking to David Caruso about the character because I thought, again, how am I going to interview him with a straight face and not make it seem that I think that character is ridiculous because maybe he doesn't think the character is ridiculous. You know, maybe he does and he's doing it for fun and it's his, you know, he's playing, he, he's playing the joke on all of us. Good for him. Or maybe it's that he doesn't and I'm going to be insulting him. And so I spent the day with him interviewing him and little by little, he explained in such a smart way why that character is the way he is in that if you're a family going through that worst day of your life, finding that your loved one has been killed, you want a John Wayne on your side. You want a bad guy who's going to make you feel like it's all going to be okay, even if he has to do it in such a ridiculous way, but it sticks in your mind. And so many of the other choices he made, he explained to me in such a logical way that I went back to watch the show as I'm writing the story, like, I am so glad I spoke to him. I have a renewed appreciation yeah. for that show. And I watched the show and I was like, Nope, I was right the first time. It's ridiculous. <laughs> the spell was broken. The spell was broken. I think that I had fallen for all of his BS. But I have to tell you, in the moments that I was sitting with him, he was a brilliant actor, explaining choices brilliantly. And I don't take that away from him. I do think that he, he intellectualized the choices he made and had a reason for doing it. And it's yeah. just we, we, the audience, who see it a different way than he does. But you know, <laughs> yes. the spell was broken when I watched the show again. I was like, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I couldn't take I that love seriously. It. You're like, <laughs> you gave little. it another shot. But gave it another sorry. shot. No, nope, I think I was right the first time. But yeah. Even, and yeah, just one more thing before the next question is that I think that, um, you know, in your book, you have insights from some of the guest stars or even from some of the producers and it a lot so much depends right not only on the actor's decision and obviously the script and the character but you know you've mentioned before too of like where a guest star 
I think it was I think it was um, Lois Nettleton, right, who played Jean, who was like yes. confused as to whether she should be funny or not, and like what her role was. Um, and you have to play off of you know, B can be cantankerous sometimes, or like you know, right. Betty's off goofing around asking you trivia questions or whatever crap, and then you know somebody's in a bad mood or this had a rewrite. The right. audience is weird, whatever, right? So there's so many things that can affect it in the moment, especially at this time with that kind of filming, but. Um, but I always thought I thought that was such interesting insight where um, I, I think it like if you want to elaborate on it too, but I think Jean didn't know if she should be funny and then realized that that was not her role. And in fact, that episode, I think, means more. And we've talked about this, too. And, and, you know, Lauren, you really illuminated this for me, especially is that she just gets to be the regular person. She happens to be gay. But like just like Clayton, he's the regular guy. There's nothing caricature-ish about him. And all of the other people are the funny ones and all right. of the other main cast get to sort of act upon her or him or whatnot so i just think i think guest stars and all this other stuff that you've put into the book there are all these little moments and pockets that illuminate things just as david caruso would explain his reasoning <laughs> behind yes. the way he played somebody well i'm glad for that and and being a guest star on a well-oiled machine of a sitcom that's been going for years is a really tough thing to do because it's like you're walking into a clique of friends and being like the new kid in school. Hi. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, the odds that you're going to fit right in and everything's going to go smoothly, there's always going to be a bump. Just whether you feel it or yourself by being too oversensitive. Maybe people are not resenting you being there, but you're you're so worried that they are that you you psych yourself out. And so when you look at sitcoms too, usually the way they're written is that guest stars are just meant to be there as a catalyst for the story that affects yeah. the regulars and so the regulars get the jokes the guest star comes in there to provoke a story and the regulars get the jokes mm -hmm. about it there are exceptions particularly when it's a high profile guest star will and grace did that all the time they'd bring in a michael douglas and yeah he'd be hilariously funny yeah because <laughs> that's a different kind of guest star spot but yeah the the more prominent the more typical guest star spot is you're there as a catalyst and so if you're a gene you're not going to get the jokes really mm -hmm. it's going to be you're there to provoke the situation that spawns the jokes. And I think Lois Nettleton realized that. The funny thing is, and 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 I, I she did, wasn't one of the people who said, oh, it's hard to join a group that's already in progress. But she, I think her take on that was so smart that she threw off Estelle because Estelle would go to the table reads of that episode and would come out of it and say to her friends like, who's this actress? She's doing nothing. Like she's not even trying. You know, she's just reading the lines. Hi, I'm Gina. And Estelle was like, she's not doing anything. She's going to get fired. And then at, at, with every successful, successive rehearsal or read, yeah. Estelle came to appreciate, oh my God, no, she's brilliant. That's what she's supposed to be doing. Right, right, she's right. She's supposed to be setting us up and being the every woman and not being the crazy character, particularly because she's playing a groundbreaking lesbian. Yes. And, and you don't, it, that there's a lot of pressure on that to represent in all the best ways. So, and they had cast her because they didn't want to cast somebody stereotypically lesbian. Right. You know, they didn't want yeah. to cast somebody masculine seeming or whatever. They deliberately cast an every woman to play her as an every woman. And that's what Lois was doing. And Estelle was thrown off. Here's this actress who's not doing anything. She's so lazy. Oh my God, wait, she's doing it exactly right. Yeah. And so she gets that balance like eight hard. funny lines. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the balance is hard. And I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, just like, you know, again, to sort of go back to it. But Will and Grace, too, I feel like, you know, as like a young, a little lesbian, like I wasn't seeing a whole lot of lesbians on TV who were no. like normal uh, or just like not normal. That's not the right way, but who weren't the story wasn't about them being a lesbian. And so I think that that's 
uh, why the gene episode is, is, you know, so great. Um, I wanted to, I was hoping to interject after the David Caruso, but we, we sort of went on another, uh, another, <laughs> another Sorry, I went because... off on a David Caruso tangent and I whipped no, off. No, that, that set me up. The David Caruso right. set me I'm up. I'm going to whip off my glasses to... again and say, that's what this show needs. <laughs> that's because... our new in- entry, Lauren. We have to record. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of redheads, yes. is, I'm going for it here. Speaking oh. of state fairs, um, uh, so Jim, you wrote the Love Boat book. Sarah, you wrote uh, an, uh, a Lucy book, a, a book about Lucille Ball. Um, and actually the two of you are doing something in LA. Is that, yes. can you give us some more info about that? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, you've, you've heard it here first and or last or a million times. We're going to talk about a lot it a little quicker, yeah. but, <laughs> but AKA Lucy, uh, the dynamic and determined life of Lucille Ball by me with a forward by somebody that you may, maybe have never heard of Amy Poehler, um, is out in October and on October 17th in Los Angeles at book soup. Um, Jim is going to be interviewing me and we're going to have a hell of a time. So I you cannot wait Everyone on the West, West coast. <laughs> I cannot wait. I, you know, uh, Lucy was my first love and I, I envied all of the, the time you got to spend doing that and, uh, and talking <laughs> with them. And, and I'm, I'm sure you got to talk with people in her life and, and, uh, and, and even working with Amy Poehler. I'm so I'm both jealous and proud of you. And I can't <laughs> hear it all from you in person. Well, I think it's 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 so great, and I and thank you for for plugging that, Lauren, uh, of our confluence of our worlds colliding. But I also think like having the Golden Girls background and having sort of like this scholarly view of it really prepared me for the Lucy book because, as we know, and as you call out in your book, Jim, it's like there's so much overlap in both real life yeah. and in the Golden Girls with Lucy, which we'll we'll go into on a very another very special enough Wicker episode. <laughs> But um, but that that long lasting power of the female comedian and somebody who could be, you know, tr- sort of traditionally beautiful, but also slapstick and hilarious or sarcastic or whatnot is is just really timeless for a million different ways. So I'm really excited to talk about it and to uh, to talk about, you know, how how the worlds collide. Well, let me tell you a Lucy story that overlaps with Golden Girls and Love Boat. So maybe <laughs> right. that'll tie this all together. Love so, it. As you know, as I stated in the book, when the Golden Girls started in 1985, Lucy was kicking around the idea of doing her TV comeback, which eventually became Life with Lucy in 1986. And so she attended a taping of the Golden Girls. And, uh, you know, I, supposedly you can hear her ha! her laugh in, in some of the, I haven't heard it. I haven't been able to find it, I have to tell you. In some <laughs> wow. of the, yeah, the, uh, the laugh track of, of the show. It's not a laugh track of the audience laughter. Um, but the way that that is, it's a trifecta that it relates to the love boat is that the, Lucy's eventual comeback, Life with Lucy, was produced by Aaron Spelling, who was dying to do a comedy, or actual situation comedy. The love boat was the closest he'd ever done to comedy. He usually did hour-long drama, detective series, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so he also then wrote, had written an, a story for Lucy to do on the love boat that was also in preparation for doing Life with Lucy. And he sent some writers over to meet with Lucy. Sarah, I don't know if you know the story. And the writers met with Lucy, who was enjoying some afternoon uh, libations. Yes. <laughs> and throughout the course of the afternoon, they came up with this story that Lucy would do. Because when they really were for Love Boat trying to court a huge guest star like Lucy, 
they wouldn't just write a script and send it to them and say, hey, this is for you to do. They would like really, hey, whatever you want, we'll send it right over. You know, you come up with it, whatever you want. And so that's, right. they're giving her the, the white glove treatment. So over the course of this afternoon, Lucy came up with an idea that she liked and they were hoping it was going to be her and Art Carney. And a few days later, after the writers went back and typed up this idea and made it an episode, uh, Lucy was like, I hate it. And they realized that Lucy was probably having a little bit of fright, stage fright, nerves about coming back. She had done, as you know, Stone Pillow. She, she, the reason why she turned down to playing Rose's sister on The Golden Girls was because she thought the next thing she did had to be hilarious to make up for Stone Pillow. Mm -hmm. I think that she was afraid the love boat again would not be hilarious and it wouldn't be enough Lucy and her fans wouldn't like it. I think she was really getting, she was getting stage fright and getting nerves about her place in and her legacy at the end and didn't want to do anything to mess it up. And so blamed it on the writing that they had done. And they, the, the writers didn't take offense. They ended up doing that same story about a, a married couple tearing apart different cabins on the ship, looking for a rare stamp hidden somewhere on the ship. And they ended up doing it with Cloris Leachman and Andy Griffith. So wow. the story did happen, but it was meant to be Lucy and Art Carney. But, you know, mm -hmm. it just shows Lucy at the end was in demand till the last minute, but getting oh, yeah. very choosy because of her, I think, for keeping her legacy the way she wanted it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, we, we're not going to go into it now, but yeah, we'll talk about life with Lucy yeah. for oh, yeah. sure. And Part two how, of that yes, conversation it's... in October. Come to Book Soup. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah like could have tarnished but as we've seen here and otherwise that you know lucy has only grown just like our four lovely ladies of the golden girls so jim for thank sure. you so much for being the 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 special most special of the very special episode guests for us <laughs> thank really, you. now i'm gonna really go through and it. listen to every other intro and outro and see how many times you've told them they're the most special <laughs> <laughs> you're special i could never get them to say that to me at those meetings oh um, i thought it's gonna be my intro for you at book soup october 17th and then when you come out i'm gonna say and by the way sarah you're special <laughs> i can't wait and then you me and you know hopefully many other golden girls fans in the room will laugh yes um, we should love it. <laughs> awesome well um, jimcolucci.com check him out and obviously a love boat forever and when does it come out jim Spring 2024. We'll be posting it about your... it on enough Flickr yes. social media. Oh, good. Thank you. Exactly. Put it on your list. So thank you so much and take care, everybody. You two have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, so much. So nice to meet you. Sort so of. nice to meet you too. <laughs>